Today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. Recently, I heard a story from a brother in the church who had said that, especially in his teen years, he struggled with pornography. But he first encountered this because somebody, when he was a kid, shoved it in his face repeatedly. So he was pushed. And yet, he was also then pulled as the years went on by his own desire. This is what it feels like to be in the middle of a pagan culture. We're constantly pushed towards sin by the culture around us, and we're constantly enticed and pulled in that direction as well. witness our society's descent into further ungodliness in normal living, we may find ourselves pulled towards the darkness as well. As much as we want to live godly lives, the sin nature resident in us is allured by the things of the world around us. As Pastor Ricky will be sharing, the Jews in Persia may have had the same difficulty. At such times, it's all but impossible to give in and go along with everyone else. We'll find out how Hadassah, also known as Esther, deals with this circumstance. Now, let's join Pastor Ricky for part one of this message, The Girl with Two Names. Let's get into God's Word this morning. We're going to be in the book of Esther. We are in a series called The God of Chance, where we're tuning in to the history of God's people during a time when they've been exiled, when they're no longer in control of their own lives and destinies. It seems as though they're being pushed and pulled by forces outside their control. It seems like their fate is up to chance. In fact, God is never even mentioned in the book of Esther. But that's part of the point because Esther, this book shows us a God who is sovereign behind the scenes, still fulfilling his promises through his providence. Last week, King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, threw an epic party. He was surrounded by his advisors, by all the hottest Persian celebrities. And after a week of heavy drinking, he calls his trophy wife out, calls the queen out so that he can display her to everyone. And she refuses. She brings this whole empire kind of grinding to a halt by refusing to even come out. And so he says, you know what? Like every person caught in this situation does, you know what? Well, I don't even want you to come here anyway. In fact, you're not even allowed to come in my presence anymore. So there, He throws kind of a fit, and he promises that he's going to pick a new queen. Now, between that chapter, chapter 1, and this chapter, chapter 2, most scholars believe that in the intervening period, King Xerxes goes and leads what was supposed to be a powerful display of his military might by vanquishing this tiny area called Greece, and he is humiliated there. The city-states of Greeks unite against him. The Spartans mow down and decimate his army. The Athenian navy leads a huge victory. And now he's been humiliated both by his wife and militarily. So he returns and likely one of his advisors reminds him, perhaps in a bizarre attempt to cheer him up, that he needs to pick a new queen. So he gets to that. Let's read chapter 2, verse 1. This sets the stage for the story today. After these things, when the anger of King Hashuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. 
meaning the old queen. Then the king's young men who attended him, no emphasis on the young men, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. The king does something surprising. His search for a queen is not a low-key search. This isn't a kind of a few quiet, blind dates. This isn't, hey, asking your extended family, do you know anyone that I could meet? This turns into a reality TV national spectacle. It is a contest, and the criteria to be considered are the following. First, you don't have to be willing. You are willing because the king says you are. You are automatically entered. Every woman that's young and unmarried and beautiful is automatically entered. So first, you don't have to be willing. Second, you do have to be young and unmarried. So at least there's that. That's at least one good criteria. And third, you have to be absolutely gorgeous, which is actually emphasized twice. Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king which is emphasized later. So very simple criteria. You have to be gorgeous. You have to be young, unmarried, and it doesn't matter if you want to do it or not. The terms of what this would entail are not clear here, but they become clear as the narrative unfolds. But I think it's actually helpful to get the full picture of what's involved right up front. So all these women are going to be brought to the palace. They're going to be beautified with cosmetics over a year. And then one by one, they will go into the king's chambers at night and come out in the morning. They will not be bringing board games or a good book. And if they please the king, they will become queen. If he doesn't call them again, if they simply leave his chambers, they're never called again, they'll go to another harem, a lesser harem of concubines, where likely the king would later go back and sort through them and pick a few of them to stay. And often those would be, especially those who had gotten pregnant and were having his sons. And so there would be a second tier prize you could win and become one of the king's concubines. And the others will be released. If you're an American, this seems like it should offend our sensibilities, and it is in many ways perverse and crass. But friends, let's not think too quickly that our culture is so much better. Just imagine, friends, just imagine if you would, if we had some sort of national reality television show where dozens of women are brought in and given a chance to charm or seduce or do whatever necessary to secure a rich bachelor who will give them fame and money in return. Imagine that. That would be bizarre. So let's, let's get off the high horse a little bit, come back down. God's people were right there in the midst of this kind of culture. You, you can imagine what this, in this culture, being accepted would mean about the rest of the culture. And God's people, the Jewish people, were caught up in this mandatory Persian bachelor apprentice idol culture. It seemed like if you resisted, you'd be crushed. But if you were swept up in it and simply carried along, you'd be kind of just swept down river into this craven, sinful Persian world. And it seemed like in the middle of all of this, God was nowhere to be found. 
Now, for us today, I think one of the places it is difficult for us to trust God, trust that he is still at work, is when forces around us, like our jobs or our economy or our country or our health, when those forces push on us, when they seem unstoppable, when it seems like those things are the things in charge, not God, and we struggle to trust God in the midst of that. And perhaps even more difficult is trusting God when we've been swept along into sin. When we think, I've blown it, I've wrecked my marriage, my career, my kids, my health, my finances. And what happens is our failures loom over us. And we think they are in charge, not God. And in a similar way, the people of God dealt with that as well. They were here in Persia, in exile, because they had sinned against God. It was their own failure as a nation that led to them being exiled. So here's the big idea today. God works through his providence, despite them going to focus in a little bit. He works despite them, despite those forces, despite those people seem like they're in the way, and despite us when we seem like we are in the way. Our story is going to be told in three parts this morning. Part one, Hadassah becomes Esther. Verse five, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father or mother, and the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So now we finally meet the two main Jewish characters in the book. Mordecai and Esther. Now, what do we know about Mordecai? Well, Mordecai's great-grandfather had been carried away from Jerusalem, and his family had been in exile ever since. It was emphasized twice that he was carried away. They were carried away. This wasn't their decision. This force carried them away. We're also to note that he's from a prominent tribe and family. He's probably a descendant or a, a, um, a, somebody from the, the family of Saul, the first king of Israel. And so two of his relatives pass away, and so he adopts this little girl named Hadassah. Now, Hadassah is introduced here as being doubly beautiful. That's, that's the way she's introduced. The king's order said to find all the beautiful women but she's here introduced as being both beautiful and lovely to look at. So two separate Hebrew phrases to emphasize that she not only fulfills the criteria, she far exceeds the criteria, that among a lineup of the most beautiful women out there, she would stand above them. And notice that she has two names. She is the girl with two names. First, her Jewish identity is embodied in this this name Hadassah. She is one of God's people. She's one of the people that God rescued from Egypt and preserved through many years of history, one of the people of Israel who God set his love on, one of the people that God called to follow him. She's Jewish. She's one of God's people. But she has another identity, a Persian identity. She's Esther, meaning that she's in a foreign Persian kingdom. She doesn't just have a Jewish name. She has a Persian name too. She's not in Israel. She's ruled by pagan rulers. She's pushed and pulled by pagan culture. She wakes up every day, not in the homeland of God's people, but far away. And this would cause a great tension in her life, as we'll see. Every day was a series of choices for her. Would she follow Jewish food laws about what to eat, or would she eat what everyone else did? Would she pray in front of others, or would she conceal that and keep it quiet? 
And in a way, Esther kind of sums up the predicament of all of God's people during this time period. They were both Jewish and yet living in a foreign land in exile. And despite this, the Old Testament still had two claims on them, two calls on them. The first claim the Old Testament would put on them would be to be faithful to God. Even in exile, God's people were called to be faithful to their God. They were still called to be holy as God was holy. God called them to himself, and therefore, they were to live differently. They were to put away sin and immorality and deceit and theft because all of these sins did not reflect God and his character. They were to be faithful to God, but they also had a second call, a lesser call, but still a call nonetheless to be faithful to the world around them, to the neighbors around them. See, God told Abraham that he chose him and set his love on them and would make him a nation so that through that nation, the whole world would be blessed. The prophets said that God's people were meant to be a light to the Gentiles. And therefore, in the time of Jeremiah, God actually rebukes his people when they're in exile for simply deciding to withdraw from the pagan culture around them, to just say, you know what, we're not doing anything, we're not gonna have anything to do with these people, we're done, we're gonna be faithful to God over here. And God says, no, seek the welfare or the peace of that city that you're in, for in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. So God's people were to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbors, even their pagan and foreign neighbors, and in so doing, display who God is and be a light to these people around them. Now, we today in America may not feel it, but we have the same dilemma. How do we react to this culture around us? Should we totally withdraw from the culture so that we can be faithful to God and live in either a Christian subculture bubble where we only really want to talk to Christians or interact with Christians online or listen to and watch Christian things and build walls between our lives and the lives of the people around us and be faithful to God? Or some Christians go the other end. They seek to be faithful to be in the world, to mix it up right there, to have lots of friends who are non-Christians and yet face a temptation to be swept along and to lose their faithfulness to God along the way. This is our dilemma. This is the people of Israel's dilemma. This is Esther's dilemma. And she and Mordecai are about to make a choice. Verse eight. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai, had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, one of the frustrating things about Esther, to me and maybe to you, is that the book of Esther is written in such a way that it never lets us know exactly what Esther and Mordecai are thinking. We have no idea what Mordecai was thinking by commanding her not to make her identity known. We don't know if he was thinking, okay, I'm hearing that you'll be killed if you resist, or I'm hearing that the Jews are out of favor and somebody in the harem would be killed or thrown out. We don't know. We don't know what Esther was thinking either, whether this whole thing seemed repugnant to her or exciting to her. And this is okay because 
Some parts of the Bible are prescriptive in telling us what to think about what happens, and other parts are simply descriptive. They just report what happens, and this is the latter. It's simply descriptive. But one thing is clear in the ambiguity. Hadassah, she sacrifices her identity as one of God's people in order to fully become Esther, the Persian. I think so often as Christians, we want to believe that there's sort of like a third way in between the two extremes of totally withdrawing from the world or totally being assimilated into the world. The temptation is simply to conceal our faith and our identity in the everyday stuff of life. Dr. Ian Duguid says it like this, Esther wasn't instructed to deny her faith, only to conceal it. And this is the far more subtle temptation. In other words, nobody was going up to Esther and saying, do you believe in God? And then her saying, no, I don't. Instead, she simply kept it quiet. She didn't bring it out. Hadassah becomes Esther. It was part one. Part two, Esther becomes queen. And the story continues in verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for the women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. This is where we see Esther get further and further away from her identity as one of God's people. The first indication, which we may not pick up on, is the food. She eats the food that's essentially set in front of her. And this contrast, for example, with Daniel example in Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel and his friends are taken into exile, and they're taken to the king's court and palace and trained to be kind of advisors and wise men, and they refuse, they flat out refuse to violate the Jewish dietary laws. They're so committed to preserving their faithfulness to God, and they're tested, and ultimately they triumph. But it appears in this case that Esther simply goes along with it. And then there's the issue of the cosmetics. The point of All of these cosmetics would be to prepare her body and enhance her beauty. In other words, every cosmetic treatment would be a reminder of why she was there. She was meant to offer herself to this pagan king. And notice the time that goes by. This is not happening so fast that Esther can't think about it. This is not just one day to the next to the next. She's just swept up and all of a sudden she's with the king. No, this is a year. These things would weigh on her. She had time to consider these things. Now, the text itself doesn't make any comments about the rightness or wrongness of these actions, but remember that this book is one of the books in the Bible, and we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so this this story is stacked up in the Bible with the Old Testament laws and God's commands through the prophets, all of God's commands about purity and holiness. In fact, at the same time this is happening, back in the homeland of Israel, there's a bunch of people that are in the midst of kind of a sexual compromise that Ezra, if you could read that book, goes back and has to kind of break up this period of sexual compromise. And that's happening in the same era this is happening to Esther. And what's very clear is that Esther could have stood up like Daniel, but she did not. She could have refused to obey Mordecai. 
Now you could say, well, he's kind of her authority figure. Well, it doesn't matter. No authority figure is able to command you to sin against God. And so she could have easily said, no, Mordecai, I'm not going to do this. Mordecai himself could have come to his senses and gone, what am I thinking over this whole year? At some point during the year, what am I thinking? We have to escape the palace. We have to go into hiding. Anything is better than what's about to happen to my daughter. But he did not. See, what Esther was experiencing was being pushed and being pulled by the culture around her. She was being pushed in the sense that this was a command from the king. There could be a threat behind this command. This king had absolute power. There was no series of, you know, of appeals available. There wasn't a court of appeals. There wasn't a Supreme Court. There wasn't somebody to keep this pagan king in check. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And there was a whole Persian culture behind him approving of what he did. And Esther could very well fear what would happen if she refused, what would happen if she ran. She's being pushed toward this, but she's also being pulled, I believe. See, if she never made it to be queen, there's a good chance she'd be added to the king's harem to be one of his mistresses. And this would mean that she would live a life of luxury and opulence, and safety, and comfort in an era where people died very quickly, and very young, and very often. She would be, in a sense, safe. And if she won his favor, well, the position would be one of opulence and honor. She would become one of the most powerful people in all of Persia, meaning that she'd be one of the most powerful people in the whole ancient world. And isn't this so often where we find ourselves, friends? We find ourselves both pushed by the culture around us or pushed by the actions of others around us and yet pulled and enticed to sin. Recently, I heard a story from a brother in the church who had said that, especially in his teen years, he struggled with pornography. But he first encountered this because somebody, when he was a kid, shoved it in his face repeatedly. So he was pushed and yet he was also then pulled as the years went on by his own desire. This is what it feels like to be in the middle of a pagan culture. We're constantly pushed towards sin by the culture around us, and we're constantly enticed and pulled in that direction as well. And this is exactly where Esther finds herself. So what happens? In verse 15, we read this. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. Pause there. Listen to that. When the time came for Esther... The daughter of Abihail, meaning it's referencing her Jewish parents. When this Jewish girl was about to go into this pagan king, she asked for nothing except what Hagar, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women, advised. Meaning she's proactively asking for advice. And Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And this probably just means whatever she desired to take potentially could mean one of two things. Either it could mean jewelry or clothing that whatever she took in to be with the king was going to be kept by her as her gift from the king. So you want to pick something good. Or it could mean that she was trying to dress or act in a way that would kind of please the king as he delighted to be pleased. Hope in God, oh my soul, he is strong in listening today to Pastor Ricky Alcantar's series, God of Chance. If you've been encouraged by what you heard today on Better News Radio, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 915-562-7100. And also, let us know how we can be praying for you. That phone number again is 915-562-7100. Or you can email us 
at radio at betternewsradio.com. You're also invited to visit our website, betternewsradio.com. There you can listen to today's message again or peruse our archive of previous teachings by Pastor Ricky. Subscribe to our podcast as well to receive the latest messages as soon as they're available. While you're at our website, be sure to check out Pastor Ron's introduction video telling you about the gospel message and why it's vital for the world today. Pastor Ricky has also created a book that's available for free that shares some incredible better news for life. In it, Pastor Ricky shares his own story and answers questions that many have about what living as a Christian truly means. Download the Better News book for free and share with your friends and family. You'll find it at betternewsradio.com. With that, our time with you has come to an end today. We pray that you'll continue to look for God's hand in your life every day and rely on Him to guide your steps with love and grace. Know that we're praying for you frequently. Thanks for tuning in today. And be sure to join us again for more from God's Word right here on Better News Radio.